We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. away we go episode 105 of the al galdi podcast it is wednesday july 21st 2021 the day after the crowning of a new nba champion the milwaukee bucks nba champions for the first time since the 1970 71 season, a 105-98 win over the Phoenix Suns on Tuesday night. The Suns pulled a Capitals in the series, were up 2-0, then ended up losing the series. In these parts, that's called pulling a Caps. Uh, The Bucks won each of the final four games in the series as the Greek freak was sensational. Giannis Adetokounmpo in Game 6 on Tuesday night, 50 points. Yes, 50 points for Giannis in NBA Finals Game 6. Fitty, the dude scored Fitty, also had 14 rebounds and five blocks. Did have six turnovers, but whatever. Giannis Adetokounmpo is the first player with a playoff game in which he has at least 50 points, at least 10 rebounds, and at least five blocks since blocks were first tracked 
in 1973-74. What a postseason for Giannis, especially, right, considering that knee injury. You know, we thought that these NBA Finals might represent true hope for those teams, like, say, our Wizards without a top-five player in the NBA. I mean, the Suns have some really good players, but not a top-five player in the league. Our Wizards, in case you don't know, do not have a top-five player in the league. Well, the Bucks have a top-five player in the league. Heck, Milwaukee may now have the top player in the league. Giannis is supreme. Giannis is elite. And Giannis and his team now have won the NBA title. He was incredible over these last few weeks. Also, the Bucks did a great job of, wait for it, playing defense in this series. This is why I'm excited for Wes Unsell Jr. as our new Wizards head coach. Defense matters. The Bucks did such a good job of holding the Suns to the worst shot in basketball. The mid-range jumper limited the Suns' three-point attempts, limited the Suns' shots at the rim, and the math just didn't work for the Suns in this series. Even though Devin Booker and Chris Paul are two very good mid-range jump shooters, the Bucks were able to dictate things to Phoenix, and Phoenix wasn't able to shoot well enough to overcome being dictated to. Big show for you on this Wednesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Special guest, former NFL executive Joe Banner. He will go in-depth on the Washington football team. Joe worked for the Philadelphia Eagles for nearly two decades. He served as the Eagles president. He was part of the Eagles swindling Washington with the Donovan McNabb trade in 2010. Uh, But Joe was in that Eagles front office when Ron Rivera was the Eagles linebackers coach from 1999 through 2003. So we'll get Joe's takes on Ron, all that has happened with Dan Snyder, Washington signing Ryan Fitzpatrick, and much more. Also, I'll continue my position group by position group breakdown of the Washington football team heading into training camp. The position group for this show, the running backs. You know, there's a lot of hype right now for Antonio Gibson. I'll discuss why, as well as how Washington can be better in its usage of Gibson this coming season. I also have a lot for you on J.D. McKissick, Peyton Barber, Lamar Miller, and Jarrett Patterson. Yes, we drill as deep as Lamar Miller and Jarrett Patterson in the segment. A true deep dive on Washington running backs is forthcoming. Next segment, I'm talking Nationals. Another win for them on Tuesday night. And guess who spoke on Tuesday? Mike Rizzo. He spoke for the first time in a long time to reporters and had some very notable things to say about the Starling Castro situation and about the looming MLB trade deadline. I'm going to address all of that. I will talk Capitals. Yes, I mentioned the Caps a few minutes ago, but I will be talking Capitals on this show. Caps talk in late July. How many other shows in D.C. on podcast or radio are giving you good quality Capitals talk in late July? Well, you're going to get that right here on the Al Galdi podcast. Ain't nobody doing what we're doing with this pod. Uh, But yes, the expansion draft for the Seattle Kraken is on Wednesday night. We learned on Sunday of who the Caps are and aren't protecting for the expansion draft. I have five takeaways from that for you. And late in the show, some Orioles chatter as uh, John Means got rocked in his return 
from the 10-day injured list. John Means, by no means, was good on Tuesday night. Although I think we can cut the guy some slack. He'd been out for a month and a half. A reminder, uh, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, if you have the time, and this does not take much time, please give the podcast a five-star rating, and please just write like a one-sentence review saying how much you like the podcast, doing those things Helps out the pod a lot. As I like to say, we are in this thing together. We are fighting in the trenches together when it comes to the movement that is the Al Galdi podcast. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got this email from Robert Delaney. He writes, wondering if you could give your thoughts in a segment about John Heyman tweeting that the Nats should have never let Dusty Baker go. So I got to tell you, Robert, I did not know about that tweet until I read your email. And sure enough, John Heyman, longtime MLB insider, he on July 14th off the Nats drafting Dusty Baker's son. Yeah, in case you don't know, the Nats took Darren Baker in the 10th round of the 2021 MLB draft. And actually, on Tuesday, we had the news of the Nats having signed Darren Baker. So Darren Baker was the little boy who had to be yanked from near disaster at home plate in the 2002 World Series. Tweeted John Heyman on July 14th. The Nats, who never should have fired Dusty Baker, draft his son Darren, the Cal star, famous as Savior J.T. Snow's little buddy in the 2002 World Series. But the key part of that, of course, was Heyman unnecessarily saying the Nats, who never should have fired Dusty Baker. Look, Dusty Baker is a good man. Dusty Baker is killing it this season in his second season as manager of the Houston Astros. Dusty Baker is an excellent regular season manager, but he historically has not been a good manager in the postseason. This is undeniable. This is irrefutable. And it's not just that he has lost a ton of elimination games in his managerial career. It's that his decision-making in so many of these games has left so much to be desired. Dusty isn't dumb. Dusty just hasn't been on board with the progressive, analytically inclined way of doing things that works best in the playoffs. Like, you know, in 2019, when Dusty's replacement as Nats manager won the World Series. I mean, Heyman, John John, come on. Dusty's replacement won the World Series in his second season as Nats manager. And the Nats won that World Series in 2019, thanks in large part to that replacement, whose name is Davey Martinez, being outstanding in navigating, having one of the worst bullpens in recent MOB history. Davey was masterful in October 2019 with the way that he covered up having a terrible bullpen. You know when the Nats also had a terrible bullpen? 2017, which was Dusty's last season as Nats manager. And you know what happened in the 2017 postseason? Dusty did not navigate having a bad bullpen properly, and he used Sammy Solis in the 9-8 NLDS Game 5 loss to the Chicago Cubs at Nationals Park. Solis got charged with giving up a key run in the top of the seventh. 
Also in that game was the Nats inexplicably starting Gio Gonzalez. I will never forget that. I was yelling and screaming the morning of that game for the Nats not to start Gio because he didn't handle the big spot well. And guess what happened? Gio in that game, three runs in three innings, four walks. He couldn't handle the big spot. He couldn't handle the pressure. Everyone knew this about Gio, except apparently Dusty Baker. So no, the Nats did not make a mistake in parting ways with Dusty after the 2017 season. Again, Dusty is an excellent regular season manager, and that matters a lot. Like, that should not be diminished. But the postseason decision-making, not exactly stellar over the years. Well, a man whose decision-making is stellar, a man for whom you never need worry about choking in the big spot, is John Grandlin of Real Broker, master real estate agent in the DMV. If you need to sell your home, want to sell your home, even are just thinking about selling your home, contact John Grandlin. I've been telling you about John, aka John G for a while. Many of you have contacted John, have listed your homes with John. He's proud of you. Like Davey, John is proud of the boys. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, Davey. And like another head coach slash manager in DC sports, John Grandlin appreciates adaptability. You might say flexibility. You know that Ron Rivera loves position flex. Well, John Grandlin loves commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, you have position flex. John Grandlin has commission flex. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, don't pay 6%. Paying 6%, that's like bringing in Sammy Solis in an NLDS Game 5. Let John put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right. For free, some conditions apply. But interviewing John Granlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Granlin to sell your home. Call John Grandlin now. The phone number is 703-537-6747. When you call, make sure you tell him that Al Galdi sent you. Make sure you ask to hear more about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast, the commission flex. But John Grandlin's a great guy, big Nationals fan, big Washington football team fan, and nobody will do a better job of selling your home. That phone number again, 703 703- 537-6747 or visit John G sells for free.com. That's John G sells for free.com. We had a return to normalcy at Nationals Park on Tuesday night. The final score was not 24-8 or 18-1 or anything like that. There was no walk-off finish. There was no gunfire outside of the ballpark. There was just a baseball game, a normal run-of-the-mill baseball game. And the result was a third consecutive Nationals victory. 6-3, 
the final over the Miami Marlins. The Nats led 2-0 through five innings. Austin Voth then allowed three runs in the top of the sixth. But the Nats answered right back with three runs in the bottom of the six, all three runs scoring with two outs. Then came a Josh Bell pinch hit homer in the bottom of the eighth inning. And so Davey Martinez's team, the boys, they now have won three consecutive games to get to 45 and 49 on the season. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, Davey, the boys, they'd be rising over these last few games. Also on Tuesday night, the National League East leading New York Mets lost at the Cincinnati Reds 4-3. So the Nets now are five games behind the Mets. Now, a huge development on Tuesday was Mike Rizzo speaking to reporters for the first time in a long time. I'm going to get to that in a few minutes, but let us first deal with the game on Tuesday night. The big guns delivered for the Nets on Tuesday night. And is anyone on the planet right now more locked in than Juan Soto. No, he did not homer again on Tuesday night, but he got on base three more times on Tuesday night. Juan Soto won for three with a single and two walks, and each time that he got on base happened with two outs. Soto had a two-out five-pitch walk in the bottom of the first. He had a two-out five-pitch walk in the bottom of the third, and he had a two-out RBI single on a one-two pitch to left center field for a 5-3 Nats lead in the Nats' three-run sixth inning. Like, every plate appearance for Juan Soto right now is like a supreme display of hitting, even if it doesn't result in a homer. It's like the process is so good. He's back to Soto shuffling like crazy. He's feeling it right now. He is in some kind of groove right now. It's great to see this. Soto with another productive game on Tuesday night. Trey Turner had a good game on Tuesday night, two for five with two singles. But how about the specifics of the singles? Turner had a one-out opposite field single to right field on an 0-2 pitch in the Nats' one-run fifth. And he had a go-ahead, two-out first pitch opposite field RBI single to right field for a 4-3 Nats lead in the Nats' three-run sixth. Ryan Zimmerman was the Nats' starting first baseman and cleanup batter on Tuesday night. You know, we haven't seen much of Zim lately, but when we had last seen Zimmerman, it was in that 10-4 gunshots suspended loss to the San Diego Padres at Nationals Park over the weekend. Zimmerman in that game smashing a three-run homer to dead center field in the bottom of the third. Also had a two-out five-pitch walk in the Nats' one-run first. So Zimmerman in that game did something, and Zimmerman in this game on Tuesday night did something. One for four, but the one, a big double. Zimmerman had a two-out RBI double to center field on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the fifth inning. So note the specifics of some of these moments here for Soto, Turner, and Zimmerman. Soto's two-out RBI single for the 5-3 lead in the three-run six, that came on a 1-2 pitch. Turner's opposite field single with one out in the Nats' one-run fifth inning. That single came on an 0-2 pitch. Zimmerman's two-out RBI double in the bottom of the fifth. That came on an 0-2 pitch. Nats batters, when down in counts, still author productive plate appearances. And we saw that multiple times on Tuesday night. Really good hitting on display by the Nats. And then there was the Josh Bell homer, which was just straight mashing. Josh Bell, bottom of the eighth inning, a pinch leadoff homer to left field for a 6-3 Nats lead. Josh Bell now is homered in each of the two games in this series, each time to left field. Now, the homer in the 18-1 win over the Marlins at Nationals Park on Monday night, that was a moonshot. That was a ball that landed near the top of section 104. The homer went and projected 446 feet per stat cast. 
This home run on Tuesday night was not a Ruthian clout the way that homer on Monday night was. But still, Josh Bell with a no-doubter of a home run on Tuesday night, and he remains in a much better place as compared to where he was over, say, the first month of the season. Also with a good game offensively on Tuesday night was Tres Pereira, who was doing some kind of job here for the Nats over these last few games. Tres Pereira, again, was the Nats starting catcher, two for four with two doubles. He had a two-out ground rule double to right field in the bottom of the fourth, and he had a one-out double in the Nats' three-run sixth inning. It's a small sample size, yes, but Tres Pereira now, over 29 plate appearances this season, has an OPS of 972. Yes, the Nats miss Jan Gomes. I'm not trying to say that the Nats don't miss Jan Gomes, but given this like revolving door at catcher this season with the injuries, with the COVID-19 situation, that the Nats have gotten this from Tres Pereira over these last few games, you shouldn't minimize that. That's significant. I mean, remember the Nats were going with the likes of Rene Rivera and Jackson Reitz in recent times. Tres Pereira has brought at least a little bit of stability here while the Nats wait for Jan Gomes and Alex Avila to come off the 10-day injured list. And Josh Harrison had another game with a big hit. Josh Harrison on Tuesday night, a double, uh, first pitch leadoff double in the Nats one run second inning. You know, Josh Harrison rather quietly is on a nice little run here. Bunch of extra base hits lately, had another one in this game on Tuesday night. Now, there was bad news for the Nationals from a position player standpoint in this game. Alcides Escobar got hurt. The question now is, is he going to miss time? So he left the game in that Nats three-run six inning off getting hit on his right forearm slash wrist on a two-out hit-by-pitch from Marlins reliever and former Oriole Richard Blyer. Uh, So disappointing to see that. I mean, Escobar looked to really be in pain. You always worry about stuff like that because that, that is an easy way, right, to break your wrist or your hand and, you know, be out multiple months. So we'll see what this ends up being. It doesn't sound like this is ultra serious. It does sound like Escobar could be back in a few days. But I think we all know enough by now when it comes to Nationals injuries to not rush to any conclusion, even if we're told of a specific conclusion. Let's see where we're at 24 hours from now, 48 hours from now with Alcides Escobar. But it sounds so funny, doesn't it? The Nats can ill afford to lose Alcides Escobar, but I'll say it, the Nats can ill afford to lose Alcides Escobar. And I tell you, with Escobar, we've talked so much about him getting on base. Escobar defensively, I think, is actually doing a pretty good job. Escobar had a nice defensive play in this game on Tuesday night. Uh, Go back to the top of the fifth inning. Escobar, really good job for the first out of that inning. A nice backhanded stab on a short hop while ranging toward third base. He then threw across his body to get the speedy Magnuri Sierra on a ground out. Uh, Escobar has been such a nice surprise with what he's given the Nats over his brief time with the team. Remember, the Nats got him from the Kansas City Royals for cash considerations. He's given the Nats a whole lot more production than just cash considerations over these last few weeks here. From a pitching standpoint for the Nats in this 6-3 win over the Marlins at Nationals Park on Tuesday night, Paolo Espino was the national starting pitcher, the man who Davey Martinez has called the Nats' secret weapon, Well, the secret had been out lately with Paolo Espino having struggled over his last three appearances, but Paolo was back to being Paolo on Tuesday night. Five scoreless innings, and I'll say what I said after John Lester's really good performance in the 18-1 bludgeoning of the Marlins at Nats Park on Monday night. The Marlins are a really bad hitting team. The Marlins are missing multiple key players right now, so we're not going to go too crazy over anything that any Nats pitcher does in this series, but 
like with Lester, Espino had not been at his best lately, okay? Now, Lester's struggles were in a category under themselves, but Espino had been off lately. His last three appearances, he had allowed nine runs in 10 and the third innings. So for him to go out there on Tuesday night and give you five shutout innings, that's a good job. Uh, and this was like typical Paolo Espino. You know, he doesn't blow you away with his stuff. He only had three strikeouts, but he threw strikes. No walks for Paolo over the five innings. Did give up some hits, four hits, a double and three singles, but he threw 49 strikes versus 24 balls on 73 pitches. This was the Paolo who we saw when he made, say, that spot start in that 8-4 win over the New York Mets at Nationals Park back on June 28th. That was that makeup game. Paolo in that game, five scoreless innings, lowered his ERA for the season to 202 with what he did in that game. That's the Paolo Espino we've seen for most of this season, truthfully. Again, Davey Martinez dubbed Paolo the secret weapon, and the secret weapon was back in full effect on Tuesday night. Well, I'm not sure if he's a secret weapon, but he certainly is someone who can be weaponized when it comes to battling anything that ails you from a dermatological standpoint. Dr. George Verghese, one of the great supporters of the Al Galdi podcast. He is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. So the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions. If you're dealing with something with your skin, you absolutely want to see Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. But among the specialties for Dr. Verghese in the Institute is skin cancer. And specific to that, Dr. George Verghese and his institute offer something that's a game changer, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, effective, and non-surgical. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You have options. SRT is an option, and Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. When you call, make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. Make sure you tell them, I heard about Dr. George Verghese on the Al Galdi podcast. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit mid AtlanticSkin.com. That's MidAtlanticSkin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. We'll get to what Mike Rizzo had to say on Tuesday in just a bit, but the Nats bullpen on Tuesday night. I did want to make mention of this. Four Nats relievers ended up combining to allow three runs in four innings. The thing is, three of the four relievers were lights out. It was Austin Voth who was the problem. So Austin Voth relieved Paolo Espino in this 6-3 win over the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park. And Voth looked like a mess initially, ended up settling down, but the mess was messy enough to where the Marlins ended up taking the lead. Austin Voth allowed three runs in the top of the six. He came into the game to begin the top of the six with the Nats leading 2-0. He proceeded to allow the first three batters he faced 
to reach base. Gave up a leadoff seven-pitch walk to Isan Diaz, despite Diaz having been down in the count at 1.12. Then gave up a single to Starling Marte, and then gave up the big blow. A three-run homer by Adam Duvall. Both then did get three consecutive outs. So you're watching this game, you're like, where the heck was that five minutes ago? But yeah, man, Nats went from leading 2 nothing to trailing 3-2, thanks to Austin Voth. But the Nats, to their credit, battled back, scored three runs in the bottom of the sixth inning. And the Nats bullpen the rest of the game was lights out. Kyle Finnegan, a perfect top of the seventh. Daniel Hudson, a perfect top of the eighth with two strikeouts, which were strikeouts of Starling Marte and Adam Duvall on a combined seven pitches for the last two outs. Hudson looked awesome in that eighth inning. And then Brad Hand, a perfect top of the ninth inning. Hudson and Hand, much better than they were in that 8-7 win over the San Diego Padres in Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon. That's won that game, yes, but Hudson in that game, two runs, one earned in the top of the eighth, gave up a one-out, two-run homer to Manny Machado. And Hand in the game gave up a game-tying run in the top of the ninth inning, that game-tying RBI single by Trent Grisham on a 1-2 pitch with two outs. And Hand issued three walks, uh, one of which was intentional, although Hand did have three strikeouts in that top of the ninth on Sunday afternoon. All right, Mike Rizzo, the Nationals president of baseball operations and general manager. He spoke on Tuesday, spoke to reporters for the first time since April. It had been way too long since Mike Rizzo had spoken to reporters. Now, Mike Rizzo does a radio interview every week, so it's not like Rizzo had been a complete recluse over these last few months, but it had been bizarre. It had been odd. It had been, dare I say, Bruce Allen-like. Mike Rizzo's avoidance of the media over these last few months but he was out there on Tuesday. He spoke for a while, and I thought he spoke well. He said a lot of good things, you know, seemed to be in a good mood, had interesting things to say. Mike Rizzo's a very smart guy. I mean, Mike Rizzo, to me, is probably the second best general manager in Washington, D.C. sports history. I mean, Bobby Beathard is the unquestioned number one, but if you're saying, well, who's number two? Mike Rizzo's on the short list, at the very least, in terms of the second best general manager, the second best front office executive in Washington, D.C., sports history. So, Starling Castro, uh, Mike Rizzo addressed this, and he addressed this forcefully. As you know by now, the Nats on Friday announced that Starling Castro has been placed on administrative leave by Major League Baseball under the joint MOB-MOBPA domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse policy for a domestic violence allegation. Well, Rizzo came out strongly against not just domestic violence, which of course everyone is against, but came out forcefully against Castro with what Rizzo had to say on Tuesday. Rizzo on Tuesday sounded just like Davey Martinez sounded when he addressed the Starling Castro situation this past Friday in a pregame press conference. Davey came out forcefully against domestic violence and, as you may recall, did not pledge support to Castro, saying that he, Davey, had nothing to say to Castro until the process is complete. Well, Rizzo on Tuesday said that he is not planning on having Starling Castro back. So there was nothing along the lines of, well, let's see how the process plays out. There was nothing along the lines of, well, you know, the Starling Castro I know would never be guilty of something like domestic violence. No, Rizzo, like Davey, basically said, we're done with Starling Castro. Mike Rizzo also said this. It's something that... uh cannot happen. It should not happen. Uh, it will not happen with the Washington Nationals. Uh, otherwise, we'll fix it. And, uh, and 
and that was my thoughts at the time. Have you spoken to Starling Castro at all since? I have not. And you are such a big character, clubhouse guy. Um, you guys bet your guys. How how did this take you by surprise? I guess. Uh, you know, I was I was very disappointed by by you know when I when I found out the news. Um, you know, we do we do we, we pride ourselves on. You've heard me say it a million times that uh, you read about our guys in the sports section and, and not the other sections. And uh, and this time we failed. And. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I'm responsible for the players that I put on the roster on the field, and uh, it, it, it was we we did a lot of due diligence uh, specifically with with this player uh, because of uh, you know because of his past and because uh, uh, because we had a lot of inside information on him because he, he played for some of our coaches and that type of thing. So uh, so going into it, we felt we I, when we signed him, I felt comfortable with it. So how about that? Rizzo admitting that he failed in the vetting of Starling Castro prior to signing him as a free agent in January 2020. I mean, it's not like Starling Castro, when he came to the Nats, had this reputation for being a monster. But as I brought up on the Monday installment of the podcast, we in January 2012 learned of a sexual assault allegation against Castro And he was never charged, but that was something that was out there about him. And I don't know if this is to say that that thing now gains more credibility because of this domestic violence situation or what, but at the very least, there was that to look into when the Nats signed Castro. But the takeaway here is that both Davey Martinez and Mike Rizzo have very much sounded like they believe that Starling Castro is guilty of whatever he has been accused of. I mean, I'm a big believer in just because you're accused of something doesn't make you guilty of that something, okay? Like, you have to allow for the possibility that someone who has been accused of something isn't guilty of that something. However, on the flip side, right, every allegation of domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse, etc., needs to be taken seriously for obvious reasons. And so you have to try to walk this line of respecting the accuser respecting the allegation, but also not just rushing to judgment every time someone accuses someone of doing something. But the way that Davey and Rizzo have spoken about Castro screams to me that Davey and Rizzo know some things, okay? Or at the very least, Davey and Rizzo strongly suspect some things. Davey and Rizzo have access to information that you and I do not have access to. And so they're not going to come out and speak like this unless they're pretty darn sure that Starling Castro is guilty. And that, to me, is what you take from all this, okay? This is not a case of, well, let's see how this plays out, of, well, you know, let's see what the investigation uncovers, or, well, you know, Starling Castro has told us there's a lot of gray area here. You know what's interesting? Starling Castro, as best as I can tell, has not said a single public word since all of this happened. Now, you tell me, if you were accused of something terrible, like domestic violence, and you were innocent, would you not be shouting your innocence from the rooftop? Okay? Would you not be telling anyone who would listen that you're innocent? Starling Castro is not doing that. Starling Castro, like I said, as best as I can tell, has remained silent. And as the cliche goes, the silence speaks volumes. You know, Trevor Bauer of the Los Angeles Dodgers, has been accused of sexual assault. 
Trevor Bauer, at the very least, has proclaimed his innocence and has proclaimed it strongly, and he proclaimed that innocence quickly. And that doesn't mean that Trevor Bauer is innocent, but at the very least, it can say Trevor Bauer has acted like someone who would be innocent. I don't think you can say that here about Starling Castro. Starling Castro is done with the Nationals, and he may well be done when it comes to playing again in Major League Baseball. But I do feel confident in saying we will never see Starling Castro play for the Nationals again. Now, also for Mike Rizzo in this conversation with reporters on Tuesday, was Rizzo addressing whether the Nats will be buyers or sellers with the MLB trade deadline coming up on Friday, July 30th at 4 p.m. Eastern. Now, understand in MLB, there is no longer a non-waiver trade deadline and a waiver trade deadline. For years, it was you had the non-waiver trade deadline at the end of July and the waiver trade deadline at the end of August, and people would always get very confused. The two deadlines, thankfully, have been condensed into one. There's no more of this waiver, non-waiver garbage. It's just July 30th this year, July 31st probably, and other years moving forward. That's the trade deadline point blank period. Okay, so Friday, July 30th, 4 p.m. Eastern is the trade deadline. For months, the topic of Max Scherzer has been out there. I said it going into the season. I thought the Max Scherzer, should he be traded or shouldn't he, would be a topic this season. And sure enough, it's been a major topic because the Nationals have been a team that has not been good enough to where you say, okay, they're definitely in it. To their credit, though, they've been better enough here over the last, say, month and a half to where you say, well, they're not out of it either. Like, it's not a slam dunk either way, whether the Nats should buy or sell. And to that end, Mike Rizzo on Tuesday said that the Nats are preparing for either scenario, buying or selling. Here's what Rizzo had to say. We'll attack the trade deadline, uh, you know, like we always do. We'll be aggressive uh, in, in whatever we do. Uh, this year will be a little bit different because of, uh, you know, where we're at in the standings. I, I think we're going to we'll kind of uh, go, go by a, a dual path, you know, try and, uh, try and maximize our, uh, you know, our, our place in the standings, wherever that is. We, you know, whenever we make that decision, uh, we'll, we have 12 days before the, the trade deadline, so we, we still have some games to play before we make any kind of final decision. But uh, I think a dual path is, is probably the most advantageous for us right now. You know, we'll, uh, we'll have our... We'll have our lines in the water on, on the buy side. We'll also we'll also prepare some type of sell scenario if we have to. But, uh, but we're looking uh, we're looking forward to playing better baseball uh, for the next two weeks and uh, and see if we can uh, see if we can creep closer to the to the New York Mets and uh, see if we can make some noise uh, in the National League. Now, as everyone listening knows, there is what a front office executive says, and then there is what a front office executive does. So we'll see ultimately if the actions match the words. But just when it comes to the words, I really liked what Rizzo had to say on Tuesday. I agree with everything that Rizzo said on Tuesday regarding the MLB trade deadline. Mike Rizzo multiple times talking about the Nats taking a dual path, preparing to either buy or sell. I think that's the right way to look at things. The Nationals should not have their minds made up at this point when it comes to what to do here. The Nats, no, have not been a very good team this season, but the Nats have been good enough to where they're in the mix in a very underwhelming National League East. As you and I speak here on this Wednesday, the Nationals at 45 and 49 are just five games behind the National League East leading New York Mets. This is not an obvious get-out scenario. 
This is a scenario where you say, all right, well, look, the record isn't very good. The run differential isn't good. The Nats have a run differential of minus 16 on the season, but the division isn't very good. The Nats are in it when it comes to this division. And if the Nats are still in it, say a week from now, then you're not going to unload. You're not going to sell. And you shouldn't do those things because the Nationals are going to be in a position to where if they do get right and they do get healthier, you know, they do get back Kyle Schwarber, Steven Strasburg, Joe Ross, etc., then the Nats can make a run to win this division. And the thing with the Nats schedule is it is softier moving forward for a few weeks. You got one more game against the Miami Marlins. Then you have a three-game series this weekend at the Orioles. Then you have a four-game series at the Philadelphia Phillies, and that series right there may determine everything. July 26th through July 29th, so through the day before the trade deadline, the Nats have a four-game series at the Phillies. If the Nats, say, get swept in that series, then I think all bets are off. But, you know, if the Nats, say, split or win the series, of having won the series against the Orioles, of having already won this series against the Marlins, well, then you're not going to see the Nats sell, and they shouldn't sell. But here's the thing. The Nats have to do one or the other. The worst thing that the Nats could do here is nothing, okay? Because the Nats are not good enough to just stand pat and say, well, you know, we're in it, so we're not going to sell. Okay, fine, but then you better buy, all right? And I'm not saying to be reckless and, you know, trade away Kate Cavalli or something like that, but you got to fortify yourself. You got to add a key bat or add a bullpen arm. You got to add a piece that realistically can make a difference down the stretch of this season. Now, ultimately, again, nothing's going to matter more than the Nats getting healthier, than the Nats getting their horses back, getting Schwarber back, getting Strasburg back, getting Ross back, you know, still getting Jan Gomes back, right? I mean, you know, all these guys. But the Nats roster is flawed. And so some of those flaws have got to be addressed at the deadline if the Nats are going to be buyers. And if the Nats aren't going to be buyers, then the Nats need to sell and they need to sell hard. Because selling just a little bit doesn't do anybody any good. If you're going to sell, sell. Trade away Max Scherzer. Trade away Brad Hand. Trade away Daniel Hudson. Trade away Kyle Schwarber. I know he's hurt, but there's going to be a market for him with the sensational June that he ended up authoring. Get prospects back for these guys. The Nats farm system is in bad shape. Improve the shape of your system if you're going to be out on the rest of this season. If you're going to sell come that July 30th deadline. I don't see the Nats, though, ultimately selling. They really are going to have to fall on their faces here over the next week to end up in a position in which the team ends up selling. And I really don't see that happening. If for no other reason, then again, the schedule. The schedule is soft. I mean, again, you're facing the Orioles this weekend, okay? I mean, that tells you everything you need to know about the strength of the schedule here. But that four-game series at the Phillies next week, That could determine everything. Not that the Phillies are a great team. They're not, but they are in second place in the National League East. They are above 500, which in the National League East is not something you take for granted. Phillies are 47 and 46, but the Phillies have a double-digit run differential in the negative territory at minus 10. This division is nothing special, okay? This division has been a giant disappointment so far this year. All right, game three against the Marlins at Nationals Park, Wednesday night at 7.05, as the Nats try for a three-game sweep. Eric Fetty versus Sandy Alcantara. Alcantara's having a good season, 20 starts, ERA at 323. Fetty had been having a good season. He needs to have a good start. Uh, he has struggled to varying degrees in each of his three starts since being reinstated from the 10-day injured list, which he was on from June 27th 
retroactive to June 24th to July 6th with a left oblique strain. Fetty's last outing came in that 24-8 loss to the San Diego Padres at Nationals Park this past Friday night. Fetty in that game, six runs in one and the third innings. He threw 29 strikes versus 28 balls. He was not good. He has not been good since coming off the 10-day IL. And look, the Nats right now with Strasburg and Ross still on the 10-day injured list. It's not like Fetty's going to be pulled from the rotation if he struggles again on Wednesday night. But for his own sanity, you know, for his own career path, which had been on the upswing with what he had been doing this season, Fetty, to me, needs to go out there and pitch well against, again, a bad team with a bad offense. 
On the other hand, I probably think there's more information they could have released to at least give us more insight uh, without jeopardizing that confidentiality. You know, obviously they made some good moves. I've worked with Ron Rivera. I think Ron's just a super person and a very good head coach. Uh, so I think they had started to make some moves that gave them a chance to move in the right direction before. But, um, you know, this is an organization that hasn't been, uh, you know, the, the model the NFL would like. And I think it came to a head here. And hopefully it's going to kind of bounce off this level and get back to what it's been historically, which is one of the leading franchises in the league. Did you think that the penalties off the Beth Wilkinson investigation would be harsher? Well, again, relying on kind of history and rumor, which is dangerous, I did. But it's kind of unfair to say that without knowing what they really uncovered and how extensive and deep it was. Um, you know, we have seen some history where players seem to be getting treated a lot harsher for infractions than the owner, at least on the surface. And I'm trying to be careful because we don't know all the facts. Uh, it appears this may be another instance of that. Um, but it's very hard to know or say that definitively or even fairly uh, without knowing more of the information that, as I say, I think they could have disclosed somewhat more without giving us everything, and that would have helped answer the question, uh, feeling like we had more. So you mentioned Ron Rivera. Uh, you know Ron, him having worked for you guys when he was the Eagles linebackers coach. Ron very openly is in the midst of trying to engineer a culture change for Washington. He is the head coach in what has been deemed a coach-centric approach. Obviously, though, at the end of the day, right, he isn't the owner. Uh, with Ron, what do you make of the task in front of him, trying to turn around an entire organization, not just from a football operation standpoint, but from a culture standpoint? As I indicated earlier, and you kind of repeated in your question, I'm a big fan of Ron's. I mean, if that, that's your goal, um, this is really an excellent hire. I mean, I wish people had a better chance than just seeing him through, you know, the television screen. I mean, he is just an excellent person, a really hardworking, driven guy that just through his actions will absolutely change the culture. Now, to fully change it, where he wants to take more, they need the right leaders, they need the right... Uh, you know, play on the field to try to continue to believe and have some momentum going forward um, to really complete the whole culture change. But I can't even exaggerate for people that haven't had a chance to really know Ron personally, you know, what a strong step in the right direction that was. And now hopefully with these other steps and kind of a different mindset, uh, and maybe Dan having a little less of a role, um, hopefully Ron and the other people that he's brought in to support him can uh, continue what we saw started last year with, with the steps in the right direction that I think started to happen. The word culture has become such a buzzword with Washington. It's, of course, an abstract concept, right? Like, what exactly is an organizational culture? Having presided over multiple organizations, what does that word mean to you? Like, when you are running a football team, what is the culture truly about? Yeah, so that's a really good point you're making. And this word has become so overused and, and without clarity on what it is. But I mean, when I took over the Eagles, we were coming off, even in a city like Philadelphia, that just loves football and, and had, uh, you know, passionate followers for a long time. I mean, we had, it's hard for people to remember, but they used to black out football games. Even in Philadelphia, uh, before we took over, they were getting games canceled, and they hadn't had a team that had gone anywhere in the playoffs. So when we were trying to change culture, it was, it was really about expectations. You know, we felt that the people in the building, whether they were on the business side, the charity side, players, coaches, um, thought that we'd be okay, you know, being pretty good. And we just reset that mindset, and we did it through hires. We did that through consistent decisions. Uh, we did that by focusing on highly competitive players that we brought in. 
uh, additional psychological testing that we did with both veteran players and, and uh, younger players. Uh, so everything was geared towards bringing in people that were highly competitive, raising the bar of what the expectations were, and then holding everybody in the building, I don't care what they did, accountable for that kind of new bar that we were setting. So when I use the word culture, leadership, you know, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, teams get used to being uh, in a situation that's okay with just being okay. And I think that's the greatest danger you can have, or not being held personally accountable. And then, you know, you can really get behavior that's all over the place. So when I use that term, that's what I think. I think the Redskins took a strong step forward in that last year, both in terms of the quality of the players they brought in and the staff they brought in. I don't say that as if I think that's a done deal. In fact, I don't think you can finish that job in one year. So hopefully we're going to see that continue. Talking Washington football team with former NFL executive Joe Banner. So Ron, this offseason revamped Washington's front office, including hiring three former NFL general managers. Martin Mayhew is Washington's GM. Marty Herney is Washington's executive vice president of football slash player personnel. And Chris Polian is Washington's director of pro personnel. We know the cliche of too many chefs in the kitchen. Does this strike you as that, having three former GMs in the front office? Or do you like this as a front office setup? I might be a smidge nervous. I mean, it really depends upon the guys. It's certainly not a structure that by definition is going to cause them to fail. But I'm a believer in really clear expectations and job descriptions and no ambiguity. And they may have that. We just don't necessarily see it. I mean, by giving one of the title that's general manager and, and appears to have, in conjunction with Ron, kind of final say of personnel moves, I think that that can work fine. Now, the question is just are all three of those guys strong enough to run a team that's trying to compete with, to be one of the top six teams in the league. And when I say that, I mean a team that should be in the playoffs year after year and has a chance to advance without kind of being in denial or kidding themselves about that. So I think the structure is not what I would choose in a normal situation. But, you know, that doesn't mean it can't work. Those are three guys that have complementary skills. Ron, I think, will still be the primary leader and decision maker. And if they handle it that way and have clear distinction between each one, what each one of those people is accountable for, and then they're held accountable. You know, I think it could work well. Do you know those guys, Mayhew, Herney, and Polian? Obviously, you know of them. Do you know any of them well? Yeah, I know Marty very well, and I have a high opinion of Marty, and exactly in the way that, at least by title, we think he'll be used. His kind of macro strategy, administrative work, cap work, contract negotiation stuff, he's very, very good at. Um, I know the other two guys just from being around the league. I don't know them well enough to you know, sit there and tell you what I think of their evaluation skills or even their strategic approach to the game. Um, I do trust Ron, who's somebody that will set a high bar for people around him, um, and that would, that would give me some confidence that, that those guys are good. But I don't really, I, obviously you're in the league for 20 years, you beat everybody, you know everybody, but I don't really know them well enough to give you a fair critique. I do want to get your take on Washington at the quarterback position. Uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick, yes, is older. Yes, has bounced around. And yes, can throw interceptions. But he also has had three consecutive sneaky good seasons. Are you a fan of Washington having signed Fitzpatrick to this one-year $10 million deal? Yeah, so what I'm a fan of is if there wasn't another long-term solution, this was the best solution available in the marketplace. But at some point, they've really got to make a priority. I mean, it's what they did with RJ3. It just didn't end up being the right fit, the right guy, whatever it really was. Um, they need a long-term solution. they got to manage their cap. they got to manage their roster. You really need to know you have a quarterback in place and how good is he, what does he cost, so on and so forth. So I do think that if they didn't think there was somebody in the draft that they could get a chance to get 
two um, that they felt enthused about that they came up with the next best option. Um, I did like a couple of the quarterbacks in this draft, but I don't know that they could have got there. We'll see if the uh, time proves whether they were actually were some guys worth trying to get up to get there. But I do think in terms of thinking about the short term and wanting to kind of compete and still make progress each year while they're getting better and building the foundation have a chance to compete against the best teams in the league, that picking a pride gives them a real chance to do that. And almost anybody else who is available, they were almost guaranteed of a step backwards before going forward. And I think if it can avoid that, uh, it's smart to do. So I think in that context, it's a very good signing. It gives them a chance at least to have short-term success while they still build for the future. We talked about this a lot going into the draft, the recent history of trade-ups to take quarterbacks in drafts and how those trade-ups were not working out. And that's not to say that what's happened in the past is indicative of what will happen in the future. But, you know, it was interesting. Ron, after the draft, talked about how, yeah, it's great if you have a truly elite franchise quarterback like a Patrick Mahomes, but you also can make a Super Bowl with a non-elite quarterback. And he kept bringing up Nick Foles as an example. Just philosophically speaking, when it comes to quarterback, like no doubt, if you can get him a Mahomes, you get him. But do you think there's maybe value in signing the Fitzpatricks of the world as opposed to giving up boatloads of draft capital to move up in drafts to take quarterbacks who are far from guarantees to work out? Yeah, so I'm not a big fan of that. I really believe that the teams that have these difference-banking quarterbacks uh, are the ones that we see playing consistently in the playoffs and with a legitimate chance to advance. I mean, the Foles, to me, is a little misleading. I mean, once it played most of that year, got them the bye, got them the top seed, provided a lot of advantages. You know, Foles had a nice stretch of three games there, and they won the Super Bowl, but I don't I don't think there's anybody who thinks that if Foles had been this quarterback that entire season, there's any chance the Eagles would have even gotten near uh, that Super Bowl, and I, I think they won it in combination of Foles having a couple of really hot games. Uh, but if you look at the teams that are really winning, and I'm not sure that... I know that people look at Wentz and they say, oh, they traded up, they gave him all that money, that was a mistake. Well, I don't think the Eagles win a Super Bowl without that, so is it worth it? You know, Goff, same thing with the Rams. I mean, yeah, he's traded, he's not there anymore, but that pick and those picks they used actually got them in a Super Bowl. Most people in the league, at least, and I think most fans of teams would agree, I'm willing to uh, take a bit of a hit if it gets me to or, or winning a Super Bowl like the Eagles did and winning it and the Rams did and getting into it. So... I don't think the history is as negative as some were conveying it around the draft in terms of those guys. Because personally, if I was running a team, I would take Wentz again. You know, they got a cap right off here, and now they have to refigure out the position. But in the meantime, uh, the first couple of years he was in the league, they had outstanding success, including winning a Super Bowl. Goff took the Rams to a higher level. May not have been capable of taking him any further. So I'm not saying it was a bad move to have moved on from him, but I don't look back at it as a, as a bad pick. I, I would tell you, if you're a team... And you have a chance, even having to be aggressive, even taking the risk that it's a mistake to get a top-tier quarterback, I would always I would always go for that. There are very few of the Fitzpatrick guys out there that give you a legitimate chance to win short-term. Uh, and as you hit the years where that guy isn't sitting there, you're in deep trouble. So I think it's worth the risk to come up with that long-term guy. With Fitzpatrick, we're seeing quarterbacks play so well into their 30s, if not their 40s, do you think we almost have to like redefine the aging curve for quarterbacks and not get so caught up in how old a quarterback is, or does age still concern you when it comes to quarterbacks? Uh, with what you just said, I mean, I, I, you can't obviously dismiss it. We just saw, you know, Drew Brees leave. Now he played a very long time, but you know, at some point we do start to see some descending play. But uh, no, I think about this all the positions. I mean. You know, people get nervous when a player uh, gets injured in the last year of his contract thinking, oh, my God, he's ruined now. He was just about to cash in a free agency. But what's actually happened is 
the players that are coming off even major injuries, having to even return to the field, they're still getting full market value in their contracts from off these injuries. And that's a reflection of the fact that medicine has improved dramatically, even just in the last decade. So injuries are much, much more likely to be temporary, which I think contributes, especially at a position like quarterback, for players being able to play longer. And I don't think it's just limited to quarterbacks, although I think it's most clear there. So I do think we need to kind of redo our thinking about that some of these positions, quarterback again being the most obvious, uh, and realize that there's no reason these guys can't play longer in this era of improved sense of what can keep players healthy, eating, sleeping, working out, as well as when they do have an injury. Like we, Tom Brady just had 40, surgery as a 43-year-old guy, and I will bet you that he's going to come back and he'll play well again this year. Now, like anybody else, he could get hurt again, but... I don't think many of us would have thought somebody who's 43 and had knee surgery could go out, you know, rehab for a few months and come back and, and be the same guy he was. And I think that's what we're going to see. So I do think you're right. Final topic. So one of the things I've always respected about you is that you were a pioneer in terms of analytics in the NFL. You have a very modern and progressive way of viewing the NFL. You very much value passing in the NFL. Washington has beefed up its defense in recent years, has spent a lot of first-round picks on front seven players in recent years. And the thinking has become, well, the offense just needs to be good enough because the defense hopefully is great enough to lead the way. In 2021, is that an antiquated concept, the notion of defense leading the way, defense leading a team deep into the postseason, or can that still happen in today's NFL? Well, listen, the answer is it can be done. But do I think it's the best or easiest path to winning in this era? I don't. I mean, I think that shifted. I think there was a time in which the uh, defense could be your primary unit that was successful and you could win Super Bowls. Um, I think you now in this era you need to have a really good offense or it's really hard. Now, again, well, can they make the playoffs like that? Absolutely. We're talking about being in the final two, four, six teams at the end of the league. I think that's that's really hard to do. Now, you can't dismiss the defense. It's not like now defense doesn't matter. Teams that win have at least a good defense. But in this year, I think most of the teams winning, and there are no absolutes. I don't say this as if if you don't do this, you can't win. But in this year, it's it's more important than it's ever been to have a good offense. Uh, and I think it's really, really hard to have a defense that's so good that it can really carry the team. And we saw it years ago, like Baltimore's and Buddy Bryan's and, and even Bryan and, and some of the other teams that have had these just really dominant defenses. But I think that would be really hard to do in this era. Excellent. Joe, I always love getting your perspective. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I wish you continued health and success. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, good to catch up with Joe Banner talking some Washington football team. And now we get back to it, our countdown to Washington football team training camp. Because remember, it is the final countdown. It's the final countdown. Yes, that's right, my friends. It is the final countdown. Washington football team training camp will begin in less than a week. Tuesday, July 27th in Richmond will take place in Richmond through July 31st. Then we'll move to the team facility in Ashburn. And so I am giving to you a position group by position group breakdown of the team heading into training camp. We go in depth on one position group each show. The three biggest questions for the position group for training camp, excluding 
injury, excluding does everyone stay healthy? That's a question for every position group. And these are questions for training camp, questions to which we'll have answers by the end of training camp. Not questions for the upcoming season, questions for camp. Episode 100, I talked defensive line. Episode 101, I talked tight end. Episode 102, I talked offensive line. Monday show, episode 103, I talked linebacker. Tuesday show, episode 104, I talked corner. And now, on this episode 105, we talk running back. Yes, the running back position has been devalued greatly in the NFL over the last 15 years. But A, that doesn't mean that the position doesn't matter. The position very much matters. And B, Washington has done something very interesting at the running back position, and that is have as its top two running backs converted receivers. Washington, I believe, is ahead of the curve on this. And so let's go. The top three training camp questions for the Washington football team at running back. Question number one for the Washington football team at running back in training camp. How is Antonio Gibson doing with his turf toe injury? As I've been saying, does everyone stay healthy is a cop-out question in doing the three biggest training camp questions for each position group. But what isn't a cop-out question is how a specific player coming off a specific injury is doing. So Antonio Gibson last December missed two consecutive games due to a turf toe injury. The injury was suffered in that 23-17 win at the Pittsburgh Steelers in week 13. Gibson in a Zoom press conference after Washington's OTA practice on June 2nd said that he was still working through the turf toe injury and wasn't yet 100%. That to me was kind of troubling. I mean, the injury was suffered in that win at the Steelers. That game was last December 7th. Six months later, six months later, the injury still was a thing. A turf toe injury can be a biatch. We know that. It matters that this injury winds up in Gibson's rear view as opposed to being something that nags him this coming season. Because as you may well know, there is a ton of hype for Antonio Gibson for this coming season. He's getting all kinds of love in analytics and fantasy football circles as a potential major breakout player for the 2021 season, and he should be getting the love. Look, I loved Washington taking Gibson as soon as the team took him. You can check my Twitter timeline. Uh, Washington took Gibson in the third round of the 2020 NFL draft out of Memphis, and he ended up being terrific last season. Gibson finished the 2020 regular season with 1,045 scrimmage yards, became just the seventh rookie in franchise history and the first rookie for the franchise since running back Alfred Morris in 2012 to have at least a thousand scrimmage yards. Gibson finished the 2020 regular season number six among 47 qualified running backs in rushing DVOA per football outsiders. And how about this for pro football focus? Gibson in the 2020 regular season gained positive yardage on 96 of his rushes, highest such rate among qualified running backs in a season since 2012. That's a jaw dropper when you think about that. I mean, this guy is still learning the running back position. And as a rookie, he does something that nobody had done since 2012. Ron Rivera has compared Gibson to Christian McCaffrey. There is a lot to be excited about with Antonio Gibson, but all of this assumes that he's healthy enough to produce. Question number two for the Washington football team at running back in training camp. Do we at all get a sense of Antonio Gibson 
being featured more in the passing game. So Gibson at Memphis was a combo running back receiver. Gibson in 2019 for Memphis averaged 19.3 yards per reception, and yet Gibson in the 2020 regular season was targeted on passes just 44 times. Compare that with J.D. McKissick, who was targeted 110 times. Now, let's make two things clear. A, McKissick was very effective as a pass catcher last season. B, Gibson not being on the field more on passing downs had at least something to do with where he was at in pass protection. But still, Gibson's skill set screams that he'd be targeted more than 44 times in an offense in which another running back gets targeted 110 times. And understand that McKissick last regular season had 80 receptions, the second most receptions ever in a regular season by a Washington running back. I'm not saying not to target J.D. McKissick. I'm just saying, hey, can we please target Antonio Gibson more? I mean, how about this? Gibson in the 2020 regular season, incredibly, had just 11 third down touches. That's it. 11 third down touches for Gibson the entire regular season. And listen to the results of those third down touches. The results were spectacular. He had eight third down carries. The eight carries went for 55 yards and two touchdowns, 6.88 yards per carry. He had three third down receptions. The three third down receptions went for 47 yards and on three targets. So just 11 third down touches for Antonio Gibson last regular season. That cannot happen. And it would be one thing if Washington was great on third downs last season, but that was not the case. Washington in the 2020 regular season was number 23 out of 32 NFL teams in third down efficiency, 39.11%. Question number three for the Washington football team at running back in training camp. To what extent is Peyton Barber's spot as Washington's number three running back secure? I really like Barber's 2020 season. If you just look at the raw numbers, you're unimpressed. Barber in the 2020 regular season averaged just 2.74 yards on 94 carries. But as you hopefully know by now in listening to this podcast, you should never just look at the raw numbers. You should never just look at the traditional numbers. Barber in the 2020 regular season, very efficient on short yardage runs. He had 28 carries on plays on which Washington had three or fewer yards to go for a first down or a touchdown. 21 of those 28 carries resulted in a first down or a touchdown. Washington in the 2020 regular season was tied for seventh in the NFL in something called power success rate. Power success rate is a football outsider stat. Power success rate is the percentage of successful third and fourth down runs requiring no more than two yards for a first down or touchdown, not adjusted for opponents. So basically, it is kind of how it sounds, power success rate. When you have to engage in the power running game, the short yardage running game, how do you do? Washington ended up tied for seventh in the NFL in power success rate last regular season at 73%. Barber clearly was a big part of that. And how about this? Washington in the 2020 regular season was sixth in the NFL in rushing offense on third and fourth downs per DVOA, while Washington was next to last in the NFL, 31st in the league in passing offense DVOA 
on third and fourth downs. See, it's actually incorrect to say that Washington's offense was bad last season. Washington's passing game was bad last season. Washington's running game was actually sneaky good last season. Peyton Barber was a substantial part of that. The 2021 season will be Barber's age 27 season. It feels like he's older than that. He's not. He's still only going into his age 27 season. Washington in March 2020 signed Barber to a two-year, $3 million contract as an unrestricted free agent. There are other things to like about Barber beyond his short yarded success from last season. Peyton Barber takes care of the football. He, over his five NFL seasons, has just four fumbles over 645 career regular season carries. Barber is durable. He and his NFL career has played in 79 of a possible 80 regular season games. I have no problem with Peyton Barber being back as Washington's number three back, the team's short yardage back for this coming season, which sets up for Washington to have the exact same top three running backs for a second consecutive season for the first time in like forever. But we all know that the running back position is fleeting. There are limitations to what Peyton Barber can do, and there are some other options for Washington at running back. So Washington on March 29th did announce the re-signing of a running back, Lamar Miller. The 2021 season will be Miller's age 30 season. Washington last December 17th signed Miller to its active roster from the Chicago Bears practice squad, but he ended up being inactive for Washington's final three regular season games and then the loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the wildcard game. So Miller got signed by Washington, but then ended up never even being active in a game for Washington. And yet he re-signed with Washington in the first month of free agency. I found that interesting. Lamar Miller is a guy who has produced at the NFL level. Seven regular seasons with the Miami Dolphins and Houston Texans 2012 through 2018. He, over those seven regular seasons, averaged 4.3 yards per carry, totaled 7,429 yards from scrimmage, and totaled 40 rushing and receiving touchdowns. So this is someone who has produced an It is notable that he re-signed so early in free agency with Washington. I don't know if that's an indication that he was told some things by Washington of, hey, I know we never had you active last season, but re-sign with us because you're going to have an opportunity to make the team next season or what exactly the deal was with that. Hey, maybe he just figured I'm a running back. I'm going into my age 30 season. I better get while the getting still good here and just sign as soon as someone offers me something. There's also, of course, the undrafted rookie running back for Washington, Jarrett Patterson the kid out of Buffalo. So he is a local. He went to St. Vincent Pilate High School in Laurel, Maryland. He is a bowling ball. Jarrett Patterson is listed by Washington as being 5'8 and 195 pounds. And by the way, the 5'8 listing may be rather generous. This is a guy with three consecutive thousand yard rushing seasons for Buffalo, 2018 through 2020. This is a guy who over his three seasons for Buffalo averaged 6.11 yards per carry and totaled 52 rushing touchdowns. And this is a guy who in his 2020 junior season for Buffalo over just five games had 1,072 rushing yards and 19 rushing touchdowns. Jarrett Patterson among all draft-eligible running backs in the 2020 season for Pro Football Focus, was tied for first in yards after contact per run at 4.74 and was tied for third in missed tackles forced at 47. I believe that Jared Patterson will be a star, maybe the star of Washington's three-game preseason. This is going to be Marcus Mason 
all over again. Many of you listening remember the preseason hero that Marcus Mason ended up being. Pride of Georgetown Prep High School. Thank you very much. Could Jarrett Patterson end up being good enough to displace Peyton Barber? Anything's possible. I certainly wouldn't count on that. But again, at the running back position, always expect turnover. Always expect the unexpected. A year ago at this time, Adrian Peterson and Darius Geis were set to be Washington's top two running backs for the 2020 season. Uh, How did that work out, right? Neither guy ended up being on the team at the start of the season, obviously for two very different reasons. But yes, the running back position for Washington, this is a diverse group. This is a talented group. This is a group that ultimately could end up being quite good this upcoming season off having been sneaky good last season. And let us now talk Capitals, for whom this week is a big week. We on Wednesday night have the expansion draft for the NHL's Seattle Kraken. And we, starting on Friday night, have the 2021 NHL entry draft. The Caps do not have a first-round pick. They traded their 2021 first-round pick to the Detroit Red Wings in April as part of the package for Anthony Mantha. What I wanted to get into in this segment with you is this expansion draft for the Seattle Kraken. Release the Kraken. Uh, The Kraken will begin play this upcoming season in the NHL, will be the NHL's 32nd team. A few notes about this expansion draft. I find these things interesting. So only 30 of the NHL's other 31 teams are part of the expansion draft. The NHL's newest team prior to the Kraken The Vegas Golden Knights, who we all know well, right, because it was the Knights who the Capitals beat in five games in the 2018 Stanley Cup Final. The Knights are exempt from the expansion draft for the Kraken due to a deal that the Knights owner, Bill Foley, struck with the NHL with the Knights' original franchise agreement. However, the Knights do not get a cut of the Kraken's expansion fee. The expansion fee, $650 million which works out to $21.67 million for each of the NHL's other 30 teams. Now, remember, the NHL does not swim in money the way that, say, the NFL swims in money. So $21.67 million per team is a big deal to these NHL teams, and these teams be getting that with the Kraken coming into the NHL and with the Knights not a part of of the expansion draft. There are a number of rules for who is and isn't eligible for the expansion draft for the Kraken. There are a number of rules for who the NHL's 30 teams in the expansion draft can and can't protect. The gist of all of it is that each of the NHL's 30 existing teams in the expansion draft can protect seven forwards, three defensemen, and one goaltender, or eight skaters and one goaltender. So you can pick a path, seven forwards, three defensemen, and a goaltender, or eight skaters and a goaltender. But that's it. You can only protect one goaltender in terms of the players eligible for the expansion draft. The Kraken has to take one player from each of the existing 30 teams in the expansion draft and has to take at least 14 forwards, nine defensemen, and three goaltenders. So you have many parameters for this expansion draft. The list of players protected by NHL teams came out on Sunday, including the list of players protected by the Capitals. And so this is what I want to get into here, what we can sort of take from who the Capitals are protecting for this expansion draft. Five things stand out to me. Number one, 
Alex Ovechkin, as expected, is unprotected. Now, this may sound odd and bizarre and alarming, but if you're a Capitals fan, you understand what's happening here. So the reason that the Caps have left Ovechkin unprotected is the Kraken in taking a player in the expansion draft will be inheriting that player's contractual situation. Ovechkin is set to become an unrestricted free agent this offseason. So the Kraken taking Ovechkin would be largely, if not entirely, wasting that selection because Ovi could then just sign right back with the Caps. The NHL, by the way, has put into effect a freeze on the other 31 NHL teams making trades and waiver claims. The freeze started on Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern, will last until Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Second big takeaway, the Caps did protect both Evgeny Kuznetsov and TJ Oshie. For all of the talk in the immediate aftermath of the Caps' five-game first-round series loss to the Boston Bruins in the 2021 Stanley Cup playoffs about the Caps potentially leaving Kuzi and or Oshie unprotected for the expansion draft, each guy has been protected. The issues with Oshie are age and cost. Otherwise, he's a guy you totally want on the Caps. Everyone loves TJ Oshie. Kuznetsov, on the other hand, drives you nuts, right? I mean, he had the cocaine controversy in August and September 2019. He has disappeared for stretches in seasons. He has been benched. We had him twice getting COVID-19 this past season as he teased the Kuzi COVID hat trick, the Kuzi COVID hattie. I mean, this guy leads the world in terms of getting COVID-19. So yeah, Evgeny Kuznetsov drives you nuts, but Evgeny Kuznetsov also is immensely skilled. It was Kuznetsov, not Alex Ovechkin, who won the Conn Smythe Trophy, who led the Caps in points in the 2018 Stanley Cup playoffs. It was Kuznetsov who scored the game-winning overtime goal in the 2-1 win at the Pittsburgh Penguins in Eastern Conference Semis Game 6 to advance to the 2018 Eastern Conference Final. Kuznetsov is expensive, no doubt. The Caps signed Kuzi to an eight-year, $62.4 million contract in July 2017, but this coming season still will be just his age 29 season. Maybe the Caps trade Kuznetsov this offseason, but leaving him unprotected to me would have been short-sighted. You know, you don't want to just lose this guy for nothing, and I still would be reluctant to just trade this guy. You're trading him at a low value point. That's one of the worst things you can do. I know he makes a lot of money. I know he's a pain in the butt, but he is talented. He is gifted. And if the Caps are going to try to keep this thing going with the likes of Ovechkin and Nicholas Backstrom, the Caps are still a win-now team. And so if you're a win-now team, Evgeny Kuznetsov, if he's right, can serve you well because Kuznetsov is very much, when right, a win-now player. Takeaway number three from who the Caps protected for the expansion draft for the Seattle Kraken, the Caps protected defenseman Trevor Van Riemsdyk, but left defenseman Brendan Dillon and Justin Schultz unprotected, in addition to a number of other notable defensemen unprotected. So Trevor Van Riemsdyk in the 2020-2021 regular season played in just 20 of the Caps' 56 games, and not because he was hurt a bunch, he was a constant healthy scratch, and yet Van Riemsdyk is protected for this expansion draft, and neither Dylan nor Schultz is protected, and this very much is all about money. This is being done for salary purposes. The Caps have been up against it for a while when it comes to the salary cap, The Caps this offseason need to shed salary, and so the Caps are willing to part ways with a key defenseman in this expansion draft in order 
to shed salary. But these are two key defensemen for the Cavs, Dylan and Schultz. Dylan in the 2020-2021 regular season played in all 56 of the Cavs games. Schultz this past regular season played in 46 of the Cavs 56 games as he dealt with injury. Also left unprotected by the Cavs in terms of defensemen, Nick Jensen, Zdeno Chara, and Michael Kepney, or as Mike Greenberg of ESPN once called Michael Kepney, Miko Kepney. Miko Kepney? Yes, Miko Kepney. Miko Kepney? Yes, Miko Kepney has been left unprotected by the Caps. Takeaway number four, the Caps left goaltender Vitek Vanacek unprotected. So each of the 30 NHL teams participating in this expansion draft for the Kraken can only protect one goaltender. You figured that Vanacek would be left unprotected. You didn't think that the Caps were going to leave Ilya Samsonov unprotected. And sure enough, it was Vanacek who was not protected. But understand, Vitek Vanacek this past regular season was better than Ilya Samsonov. And I know, Samsonov has the higher upside. Samsonov was drafted to be the goaltender of the future. And perhaps he ultimately ends up delivering on that promise. But Samsonov has a lot to clean up, both on the ice and off the ice. And you look at the numbers from this past regular season, Vanacek was the better goaltender. And it's not to say that Vanacek was outstanding, but I thought he did a nice job. You look at something like save percentage on five-on-five high-danger shots on goal. I think that's always a good thing to look at, right? Strip out special teams and just look at five-on-five in the toughest predicaments, the high-danger shots on goal. How does your goaltender do? Per natural stat trick, Vitek Vanacek's save percentage this past regular season on five-on-five high-danger shots on goal, 798. Samsonov's 779. So like that to me is a key stat. Vanacek bested Samsonov in that stat. And that doesn't mean that Vanacek is going to be the better goaltender for years to come, but it just is something worth noting that the Caps' best goaltender from this past season has been left unprotected in this expansion draft. And yeah, man, I referenced them, the Samsonov off the ice escapades. You haven't had those escapades with Vitek Vanacek, but Vanacek could be gone via this expansion draft. And then takeaway number five, the Caps protected forward Daniel Sprung, but did not protect forward Connor Sheary. And this is another instance that seems to be all about money because Connor Sheary was really good for the Caps this past season. In fact, the Caps this past April 14th announced the re-signing of Connor Sheary to a two-year $3 million deal. The Caps signed Sheary last December 22nd, one year, $735,000 contract. He ended up being a really good player for the Caps this past season. What was his age 28 season? In fact, at the time of the re-signing of Sheary by the Caps, Sheary was number four on the Caps in goals, was number two among Caps players who had each played in at least 20 games in five-on-five shot attempt percentage, and was number eight among all NHL players each with at least 40 games in goals per 60 minutes of five-on-five play. He was a good, consistent player for the Caps, but the Caps are willing to part ways with him, again, for money reasons. The Caps are not in a good way right now with the salary cap. You see that very clearly communicated with how the Caps are handling this expansion draft for the Seattle Kraken. And there's irony, right? The team called the Caps is not in a good situation when it comes to the cap. But such is life for the Capitals this offseason. Miko Kepney. Yes, Mike, the Caps could lose Miko Kepney in the expansion draft. 
And before we call it a show, a few words on the Orioles, whose three-game winning streak sadly is no more. A 9-3 loss at the Tampa Bay Rays on Tuesday night. So the O's now an American League worst 31-63 and with an AL worst run differential of minus 137. The big thing from this game, the return of John Means, but successful he was not. Uh, So the O's on Tuesday activated Means off the 10-day injured list, which he had been on since June 6th with a left shoulder strain. And Means on Tuesday night was bad. I mean, there's no other way to say it. Five runs in five innings. He gave up seven hits, two homers, two doubles, and three singles. He did issue no walks, but he had just two strikeouts. Just gave up a lot of hard contact. Uh, The homers that Means gave up a leadoff homer by Randy Arozarena in the bottom of the third, and a two-run homer by Francisco Mejia in the bottom of the fourth inning. Look, I'm not going to make too big of a deal out of this. I mean, the guy had not pitched at the major league level in a month and a half, but, you know, the John Means American League side young candidate of the first few months of the season, we now have not seen in a while. Uh, The real surge for Means came over his first eight starts of the season. He, during that stretch, had an ERA of 121. He had a whip of 0.71. He threw a no-hitter, that 6 nothing no-hit win at the Seattle Mariners on May 5th, Cinco de Mayo. But since then, and the start that followed that no-hitter, it's been a very different season for John Means. Means, after that no-hitter, struggled to varying degrees in three of his next four starts. He then went on the 10-day injured list for a month and a half with the left shoulder strain. Now he's back. I'm not trying to say that John Means is like a lost cause or anything like that, but... The John Means who we saw over the first month and a half of the season, I mean, I don't know that we can just assume that that John Means will be back this season or maybe even ever again. I mean, that was some run that John Means went on. And I say all of this just to make this point. As the Orioles are in this position of rebuilding and tanking and of thinking about tomorrow as opposed to today when it comes to truly trying to win, guys like John Means have got to be on the table as trade bait. And I'm not saying you do everything you can to trade John Means. I'm not even saying necessarily that John Means is a must trade because John Means is actually under team control for multiple seasons to come. So this isn't a guy who like is on the verge of free agency the way that Trey Mancini is on the verge of free agency. Mancini can be a free agent after next season. That's not where we're at with John Means contractually. John Means is a unique story. He was an 11th round pick of the O's in the 2014 MLB draft. This is his age 28 season, so you do have to be mindful of that. I mean, it's not like the guy is 23, but he's not set to be a free agent until after the 2024 season. So if you want to hold on to John Means and have him as a piece for when you're hopefully good again, there is an argument to be made for that. That's not some Looney Tunes way of approaching this. But If you don't think John Means truly is the guy who we saw over his first eight starts of this season, or you don't think John Means is likely to repeat what he did over the first five weeks of this season, then to me, from an Oriole standpoint, you have to look at this as, all right, the next time this guy gets on a run, flip him, okay? Sell him at a high level, as opposed to saying, well, you know, maybe he can be this guy. Uh, You got to know how to assess value. You have to be honest about the talent that you have. You cannot be delusional about who people are. Like this is such a big part of what Mike Elias is trying to engineer as the Orioles executive vice president of baseball operations. You've got to know what you have, know what you don't have, and know what's best for the long haul here. And trading John Means potentially 
is in the best interest of the team. The Orioles are all in on analytics now. They have a good grasp on what Means does well, what he doesn't do well, and whether John Means being an ace is something that's viable or whether it's kind of more a smoke and mirror scenario with John Means' success. Now look, what John Means did earlier this season, it's not like that's the first time we've ever seen John Means do well. Uh, John Means had a very good season two seasons ago, the 2019 season. So yeah, like again, I'm not trying to say just get John Means out of here, but you do have to be mindful of, okay, he pitched at an incredible level over his first eight starts. Is that who he is? And if that's not who he is, then to what extent is he that guy who we saw earlier this season? And the answer to that question, I think, goes a long way toward dictating what you ultimately do with John Means as the Orioles, again, continue along this path of rebuilding at at least in this season, continuing the tank. Tankus Maximus is where the Orioles have been over these last few seasons. Game three at the Rays Wednesday afternoon at 12-10. Keegan Aiken will start for the O's. You know, at least John Means has some success he can fall back upon. For poor Keegan Aiken, it's been a rough go of it here, and he got shelled again in his last outing. A 9-2 loss at the Kansas City Royals on Friday night. Six runs in three innings. He gave up eight hits, four doubles, and four singles. He issued three walks, a balk, and a wild pitch. He recorded two strikeouts of his 74 pitches. Just eight were called strikes. Keegan Aiken now, over his last seven games, has allowed 36 earned runs in 28 and a third innings. He, on the season over 13 games, including eight starts, has an ERA of 819 and a whip of 180. You know, the O's on May 10th recalled Aiken from AAA Norfolk of having optioned him to Norfolk back on March 26. Aiken has another bad outing on Wednesday afternoon. You know, I'm all for giving guys opportunity and continuing to pitch them, but if it's not doing him any good to pitch at the major league level, he may have to go back down to AAA Norfolk. You know, like I'm I'm not a big believer in yo-yoing guys back and forth, but this is bloody. I mean, what's going on here? Again, 819 ERA, 180 whip. And it's one thing if you got that ERA in the fours or even the fives, you have an ERA in the eights. And this is over 13 games this season, including eight starts. Uh, (laughs) That is not pretty, man. That is not pretty. But yes, you do have to figure out what you have in the likes of Keegan Aiken, Dean Kramer, Bruce Zimmerman, Jorge Lopez, etc. as this season goes on. Again, for the Orioles, it's not about wins and losses. It's about player development and finding out what you have in guys. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 106, will include a conversation with another one of my former co-workers, Scott Jackson. He has been the host of the official radio postgame show for what is now the Washington football team for the last five seasons. So we'll talk Washington football team and also talk Wizards. Scott knows the Wizards really well. He used to host their postgame radio show. So we'll discuss the hiring of Wes Unsell Jr. as head coach, the potential for a major move by the Wizards this offseason and more. I'll continue my position group by position group breakdown of the Washington football team heading into training camp by talking safety and I'll react to whatever happens from a Capitals perspective and Wednesday night's expansion draft for the Seattle Kraken. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. I'll talk to you on Thursday. Miko Kempney.